Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now one with the bird. Okay, give me an email. Tell me what I'm with him. What's the problem, ma'am? Somebody just came here and saw the helmet. Somebody what? Somebody just came here and saw the helmet. All right, calm down, ma'am. I need your help. All right, calm down. That 911 call from Virginia Larzelier was made seconds after her husband was shot in the waiting room of his Edgewater dental practice 27 years ago this week. What followed was one of the most stupefying crime sagas ever in Volusia County, which is really saying something. Part one of that story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the arrest of an ex-New Smyrna Beach middle school teacher accused of having sex multiple times with a 14-year-old male student, echoing the 2004 case of Deborah Lefebvre an ex-Florida teacher arrested for doing the same thing. A former journalist who covered that case will join me for that segment. Then later, I'll discuss the 1991 shooting death of Dr. Norman Larzalier. After an extensive investigation, Edgewater police charged his wife, Virginia, and adopted son, Jason, with the slaying. It was a case that gripped an entire region from Daytona Beach to Orlando. That disturbing case is a long way from being forgotten. You'll hear audio pulled directly from the court file. Coming up, I'll discuss the arrest of a Windermere man charged in Tuesday's shooting death of his ex-girlfriend's new boyfriend in Deltona. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Armed with a rifle and filled with jealousy, An Orange County hedge fund manager waited near the door of his romantic rival's home and pulled the trigger, killing the victim as soon as he appeared. That was the story given by Volusia County Sheriff Mike Chitwood. Here he is summing up what the killer did during a media conference last week. Here's a married man dating a girl much younger than he is. And when they decide the relationship is over, his way of, 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 of fixing everybody is to grab a high-powered rifle and stalk, basically is what he did. He stalked our victim, 
until he got a clear shot at him, and then he shot him multiple times. 50-year-old Gregory Bender, detectives say, lured Patrick de la Cerda to the door of the latter's Deltona home with a spoof call about a package delivery. When the 25-year-old de la Cerda stood at his glass front door, Bender, who was taking aim with a rifle, fired his kill shot, according to the sheriff's office. Here is Chitwood talking more about the case during the same media conference. Our suspect in this case, Bender, had plotted to kill our victim for months. And yesterday, he, his plans came to fruition when he gunned down our unsuspecting victim in this case. Bender has been charged with first-degree murder. He was being held without bail at the Orange County Jail. Investigators said Bender had written out in great detail his murder plot in a spiral notebook which was discovered by detectives during a search warrant of the suspect's upscale home in Windermere. Daymara Bender had filed for divorce, and it was granted in December. Bender was served with an injunction for protection on December 5th. It was filed by his ex-wife. De La Serta also filed one, but it was denied. Details of that filing were not available because they were sealed. Chitwood told the media that a protective order is only a piece of paper. It cannot protect anyone from a high-powered rifle. The sheriff said Bender's spiral notebook contained many details of his plan. Bender found out where De La Serta lived and figured out how to get onto the property without having to go through the gate. Chitwood also said Bender had considered changing clothes and using burner phones and even obscuring the license plate on his car to hide it from the security cameras on the property. Deputies revealed the following. A sign on the victim's gate included instructions on what to do in the event of delivering a package. A phone number was listed for the delivery driver to call. Bender used an access road near the wooded property and sneaked onto it and found a spot near the house. He called the number, which was answered by De La Serta's father. The person on the other line told him he was there to deliver a package to his son. The father, who wasn't home at the time, called his son. Then De La Verda walked to the door and was met by a series of rifle shots. Deputies said Bender then walked into the home as his victim was lying on the floor, dying. While in the home, Bender stole the recorder, which stored the images from the video camera, according to authorities. Chitwood said Bender had called his ex-wife on Tuesday morning, which violated the injunction. That meant deputies zeroed in on him as the suspect right from the start. They jailed him on a charge of violation of an injunction, and detectives worked on the case. I could not be prouder of uh, our detectives. They work hard in every case, every time that case they come in. In this case, from the minute we got the call at 11.30 in the morning until this morning at 7 a.m., and even now, uh, this investigation is far from over. Bender has not admitted to the crime, according to reports. He immediately asked for an attorney. Coming up, the story of a new Smyrna Beach middle school teacher who resigned her job last Monday and less than 48 hours later was arrested on allegations of carrying on a sexual relationship with a 14-year-old student.
just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Mrs. Johnson, principal of New Smyrna Beach Middle School, calling to provide you with information regarding a New Smyrna Beach Middle School science teacher who was arrested this morning by the sheriff's office. This teacher resigned her position Monday morning prior to her arrest and will not be returning to our school campus. That was a portion of a recorded message made by New Smyrna Beach Middle School Principal Elizabeth Johnson, which was sent to students' parents at 3 p.m. Wednesday. Earlier that day, the News Journal reported on its website the arrest of Stephanie Peterson Ferry, a 26-year-old Edgewater woman who had been employed with the Volusia County School District for more than seven years. Volusia County Sheriff's deputies said Peterson, who was charged with two counts of lewd or lascivious battery and one count of transmission of harmful materials to a minor, was accused of having sexual relations with a 14-year-old former student and exchanging explicit photos with him. An arrest report stated Peterson would pick up the teen at his home late at night after her husband, a DeLand firefighter, went to work and the two would go back to her place to have sex. Detectives said they were notified of the relationship Tuesday after the student divulged it to his parents. The arrest report revealed the following. One of the boy's parents received a phone call last week from a male teacher from New Smyrna Beach Middle asking whether he could mentor the boy. The parent felt it was a weird phone call and talked to the teen about it. The parent then joked whether the boy was afraid the teacher would molest him. That triggered an emotional reaction from the teen, who replied to his parent with tears in his eyes, quote, anyone could molest you. The parent immediately suspected Peterson because the teen would frequent her classroom a lot. The same parent also had sensed something was wrong because the boy's grades had been suffering lately, according to the report. Deputies said that in addition to having sex at our house, the pair also would have sex inside our barn on the boy's parents' property. Peterson is accused of buying him marijuana and bowls for smoking it. The boy also told authorities that Peterson took his virginity. An investigator stated in her report that she was provided with provocative photos of the teacher, which the boy still had on his smartphone. Someone from the teen's household, whose name was redacted from the report, answered the teen's phone the Friday before Peterson's arrest. This was also after the parents were told about the affair. The person calling the teen was Peterson. That person who answered the phone brought up the alleged relationship, and Peterson became apologetic. On the very next school day, Peterson resigned. She stated that personal reasons were behind the decision, according to a district spokeswoman. Peterson was first hired as a substitute teacher by the Volusia County School District in October 2010. In August 2013, she was hired full-time as a reading teacher 
She became a science teacher at New Smyrna Beach Middle in August 2016. The accuser was a student of hers during the first year at New Smyrna, but their relationship did not begin until the following school year, according to the sheriff's office. Court documents reveal that Peterson filed for divorce from her husband about three weeks ago. Photos from Peterson's Facebook page were passed around on the web almost immediately after news broke about her arrest. One photo in particular, the Peterson in a two-piece bathing suit holding up a fish while on a boat, generated a lot of attention. The attractive former teacher and her arrest evoked memories of another Florida case with startling similarities. In 2004, Deborah Lefebvre, an English teacher at Greco Middle School in Temple Terrace in Hillsborough County, had sex multiple times with a 14-year-old male student. In May 2004, the boy and Lefebvre visited the boy's cousin in Ocala. It was during that visit that the boy's aunt started becoming suspicious of the scantily clad woman accompanying her nephew. She also was suspicious after the way her nephew and son were talking about Lefebvre. Last week, I had a conversation with Mabel Perez, a former crime and justice reporter for the Ocala Star Banner. Lefebvre was charged in two counties, Hillsborough and Marion, and Perez covered the case in Marion. She vividly recalls how the victim's aunt in Ocala got the criminal investigation going. She started seeing some, uh, seeing giggles and laughter and conversation, and um, she picked up bits and pieces of it, but knew something was going on. And uh, herself and um, the mother, you know, they did talk to to the boys, and uh, you know, obviously the kids told them what was going on. Lefebvre, like Peterson, was considered very attractive. Her attorney, at one point, caused quite a stir when he suggested to the media that Lefebvre was too beautiful for prison, telling reporters that putting her in an environment with other inmates was, quote, like putting a piece of raw meat in with the lions. It was one of many reasons why that case generated national attention. You know, you hate to say that a lot of it has to do with optics, but Deborah Lefebvre, I mean, she was young, she was beautiful and blonde, and it was almost like a made-for-TV type uh, crime. I mean, you had this woman who uh, was a young teacher, you know, handsome husband, and here she is getting involved with a a 14-year-old young man, and it just, it was insane, you know, when you look at it from that standpoint. But in the end, Lefebvre never went to prison. Lefebvre, through her attorney, said all along she would not agree to a plea bargain that included prison. The victim's mother, however, was committed to putting her there through much of the pretrial phase. But once it became clear what a trial would be like, she changed her mind. Court TV was set to cover it. This was also set at a time when the advent of online journalism was forming. And that kind of journalism didn't play by the same rules as the media establishment. All of that meant there were no guarantees that the boy's name and face would be hidden from public view. The mother refused to put him through that and agreed to a plea agreement that resulted in three years of house arrest and seven years of probation. 
As Perez explained to me, there was another factor for her to consider. It wasn't that the mom thought that Lafave shouldn't have gone to trial, but she knew that it would be a circus. I mean, it, it, it was made for TV. And, um, and another piece of it was also that the young man, although he was 14, if I'm not mistaken, looked of an older age. And I think the mom had some concerns about optics and that, you know, if this were to go to live trial, you have a 14-year-old who, you know, maybe resembles, you know, more of a 20-year-old. And from a visual standpoint, um, you know, how will jurors see the incident? I mean, the facts were that he was 14 and she's an adult, but, you know, if they're sitting next to each other, you know, is it really, would jurors view it as, as abuse or something consensual although we know that in the state of florida um, legally you can't consent when you're 14 years old the judge in the hillsborough case signed off on the proposed plea agreement and sentenced lefebvre accordingly the judge in marion however did not go for it he believed that allowing lefebvre to avoid prison time for her conviction would undermine the credibility of the criminal justice system he rejected the plea offer That left the state attorney's office with only one option, dropping the charges. That further enraged the judge, but there was nothing he could do. Lefebvre avoided trial and prison. Her case ratcheted up the debate of gender equality when it comes to sex cases. If a male teacher in his mid-twenties had sex with an underage girl and got convicted, it seems like a good bet he would get a severe prison sentence. In the case of a woman in her mid-twenties having sex with an underage boy, there is a good chance of a far less severe sentence, and that double standard is only exacerbated when the female suspect is attractive. In another case in Volusia County, a 45-year-old teacher at Warner Christian Academy in South Daytona was caught having sex with a 17-year-old student in 2008. Cynthia Horvath pleaded no contest to a second-degree felony charge. She, too, avoided prison. She served one year of house arrest. Obviously, I don't think it's fair, but I think that it's a reflection of society, of that double standard. Um, You have, um, you know, teachers that are female, and if they're attractive or young, um, they almost become celebrities so that piece of it bothers me that that they do you know get get this notoriety and sexiness and just coverage just by their looks and it and it and and that shouldn't matter and then uh from the you know i guess the standpoint of a you know a, a male teacher who gets involved with their students i think that i think the courts are, are tougher on them whether or not it's on purpose or not on purpose i can't say but I think it really has to do with the visual of it all. Both Lefebvre and Horvath were required to register as sex offenders. As for Peterson, a judge on Thursday lowered her bail from 25000 to $12,500. She posted bail hours later. Chitwood, during the same media conference in which he discussed the Deltona shooting, said jail was the appropriate place for Peterson. He gave every indication that he does not believe there should be a double standard. I, I think it's a good place for him to be. I mean, honestly, 
you know, when you look at that, we had a 27-year-old uh, grooming a 13-year-old. I mean, it's, it's, it's just reversed. What would be the difference if it was a male teacher who was grooming uh, the pedophile dog? It's the same exact thing. You know, you earn their trust and confidence. You know, you, you, you apply them with drugs. You, you're in a position of power. Don't tell anybody you want to get in trouble. I'm going to make you the teacher's aid. And then, you know, all these things happen. And basically, uh, that young man, uh, you know, he had, I always say his childhood was stolen. You know, 13-year-old should be out playing ball, you know, riding bikes and chasing, chasing their other 13-year-olds around Chitwood said no other victims have come forward with reports they had sex with Peterson. Coming up, the twisted tale of Virginia Larzalier, who was charged in the murder of her husband, who was killed at his dental practice while she looked on. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Someone wanted it to look like a robbery. Instead, it looked like a hit job. An amateurish one, but nonetheless, a successful one. 39-year-old Norman Larzelier was eating lunch at his desk during the early afternoon hours of March 8, 1991, when he heard something in the hallway. It may have been a cough or some other noise. Either way, it got his attention. He got out of his chair and peeked down the hall. A look of horror came over his face. Someone in a ski mask was carrying a shotgun and heading straight for him. Norman begged for his life as he ran down the hallway. He entered the lobby area and shut the door. It wasn't a thick enough door. Buckshot pellets from a shotgun cut through the door. Then they penetrated Norman's chest cavity. He suffered fatal wounds. An assistant, Emma Labardo, watched it all unfold. So did a patient who was in the lobby. Virginia Larzelier, Norman's wife, was seated near the check-in window. Virginia called 911 in a panic. The call got disconnected, and the emergency operator called back. This time, Emma got on the phone. You can hear Virginia screaming in the background during the call. Someone came and shooting? The call lasted for close to four minutes. Two emergency operators tried to get Emma to calm down enough to describe what happened and to give them an idea of the victim's condition. Ma'am, ma'am, you have to calm down. Calm down, ma'am, for evac, okay? Okay. Is the person still there with the gun? No, you left. Okay. Listen to me. You there? You there? Yes, I'm still there. I she's breathing or not. Okay. Ready, is she still breathing? Ready, is she still breathing? Ready, is she still breathing? Ready, 
Well, so calm down, okay? According to news stories, Norman died during the helicopter ride to the hospital. The office at 109 West Knapp Avenue was a stucco home converted into a dental office, and it was located in a residential neighborhood, but only one block from US-1. The initial story in the news journal about the shooting stated that the suspect was described as stocky with a dark complexion. He stood about 5 feet 9 inches tall and wore a mask, gloves, long sleeves, and boots. He fled from the scene through a side door, the same one, presumably, that he used to enter the building. No one saw his face. Police had ruled out a robbery very soon after the investigation began. But the safe was open. Some cash was missing, as were some bottles of Valium. It was clear from the start that Virginia wanted detectives to think that someone came in with the intention of stealing something. I obtained some audio of detectives' interviews with Virginia. They were recorded with cassette tapes in 1991 and shelled for a long time before the audio was burned onto CDs. The sound quality is poor. But you can get the sense that investigators were skeptical of the stories Virginia had given them. In this interview, which was done over the phone by then-Sergeant Bill Bennett of the Edgewater Police Department, Virginia asked him whether he had looked into one particular patient of her husband's, a motorcycle gang member who had behaved strangely during his appointment days before the killing. The male... Um tell you about the motorcycle guy that we had the incident with that morning? Yes. Did you pull his truck because his truck was still at the office? Um, I don't think he, I'd have to ask him if he pulled the motorcycle guy's truck or not. Well, it was still at the office and in exactly where I put it, so I didn't think he had. Right. Um, I mean, listen. Him and I were talking yesterday, and that still bothers us because of what he said about the safe and what he kept saying about different things while he was in there. Yeah. It still bothers both of us. Yeah. Do you know the name of the motorcycle guy? Uh-huh. Um, he was out of Chicago, Illinois. Chicago? Yeah, he was in for bike week. He's a warlord. Warlock. Oh, I'm sorry. Warlock. Well, I don't know. Maybe there's warlords now, too. I don't know. they got so many of those games. He really was giving me that time and had me really nervous. There was, I don't know, I was real upset with him. That's why Norm got him in the back. Mm-hmm. And he bought, then he bothered Emma, and it keeps standing out in Emma's mind. The detective who led the investigation was Dave Gamel. 
Witnesses had told him that among Norman's last words were, Jason, was that you? The patient in the lobby swore she heard that. Norman was referring to Jason Larzelier, who was Virginia's 18-year-old son. Norman had adopted him when he married Virginia six years earlier. Emma knew Jason, and she told Gamel that's who she believed pulled the trigger. Emma said it looked just like Jason. She goes, I, I've known Jason since he was a little boy and watched him grow up. Both women also said Virginia must have heard her husband say those words because she ran outside repeating what he had said. Here is a portion of one of Gamel's interviews with Virginia. We were told that uh, when after you had apparently grabbed this guy, you ran out the back door or the side door there. Did you go out there and scream, Jason, is that you, Jason, Jason? We were told that by two different people that heard that. Is there a reason for you to say that? Or can you explain why you would say something like that? We had a, we have a written statement saying that you said, as you went out, you said, Jason, is that you? Jason, is that you? Because, yeah, I did say that because Norman had said, had said Jason, we were talking about Jason. And I didn't know what was going on. And I said, Jason, is that you? Because I didn't know somebody. I did I heard noise. I knew it was shot, but I didn't know what had happened. And I said, Jason, is that I know I said it. Yeah. But then I saw it was not the same. Jason told police he was in a mall in Orlando at the time of the shooting. Other reports show he used a dry-cleaning ticket to prove that he wasn't anywhere near Edgewater when the shooting took place. Virginia, as you just heard, also vouched for him. Gamel continued to convey doubt as he questioned her further. The things she said she saw, or couldn't see, didn't appear to be the truth. Well, see, if he was there, he could have seen his assailant coming through that window right there as he pulled up. Nobody came through that door. I was sitting there. Okay, but what I'm saying, I'm not saying he didn't say to me that door, but he could have seen that. Yeah. You know? Because even if he saw the car pull up, the guy could have went in the back door or the side door, am I correct? Uh, can you see it far when it comes to the Sure you can. From that window. Gamel still tried to keep her engaged with assurances that he would investigate the case thoroughly. He also urged her to be honest with him. No, the only thing I can only ask from you is that you be totally honest with me and help me. You know, I, I appreciate you allowing us to be here interviewing you, especially so close after you know, this crisis. And just please understand that you are not... I don't mind. I don't have anything to hide. All I ask is a fair investigation. Why? Well, I promise you to get Three weeks later, the News Journal published a story revealing Virginia's dissatisfaction with the police investigation. She said detectives were hounding her and her son. They were being treated like suspects. Police denied her allegations of harassment. But police did tell the media that the criminal who burst into the dental office on March 8th had only one thing on his mind, killing Norman Larzelier. Evidence, they said, contradicted Virginia's claims of a robbery. But Virginia kept singing the same tune. She said Norman was killed by a Valium-hungry robber who also got away with some gold coins that had been kept in the safe. She told the News Journal, quote, To be honest, I don't know which end is up and which end is down anymore. Every time I turn around, the Edgewater Police Department 
has a different version. She also said Jason had an epileptic condition that required daily doses of a strong kind of medicine. There was no way he could have been the shooter. Less than a week later, another story appeared in the paper. Police said in that article that the case kept getting stranger by the day. In that same story, Virginia claimed that someone wanted her dead. She said someone had shot at her house while she was home. She also said she had dug bullets out of her door frame. Authorities said there was no evidence that anyone had fired any shots on or toward her property. Regardless, Virginia had hired a bodyguard. Virginia was living lavishly at the time. Her house was a mansion. Her husband had a boat. The property included tennis courts, and Virginia drove around in a Mercedes-Benz convertible. She loved that car. She mentioned her fear in losing it when she talked about the police zeroing in on her as a suspect. The News Journal also reported that there was one piece of information that hadn't yet been disclosed. Virginia was set to collect millions of dollars in life insurance. The amount kept changing in subsequent articles, but eventually it was discovered that Virginia was, in fact, in line to inherit $2.1 million. There was so much more about Virginia that also raised doubts about her innocence. In March 1989, Norman filed for divorce against his wife. He asked for full custody of the children and claimed his wife was suicidal, addicted to drugs, and a thief. He stated in court documents that she stole drugs from the office. She also had several aliases and even misrepresented herself as a doctor. She had told people she was a financial specialist and multimillionaire. She mismanaged funds while at the office. Reports also stated that Virginia was cheating on Norman. The petition eventually was dropped in October 1990. One crime show that profiled the case about five years ago reported that Virginia suggested she and Norman begin a swinging lifestyle. Thinking it was the only way to keep the marriage going, he agreed. He could keep his eye on the men she slept with, and he could also sleep with other women. There was another issue. The practice was under review by the state, and Virginia was the reason for that. Insurance claims were filed for work that wasn't done. Drugs were ordered and then prescribed. That, in and of itself, is not unusual at a dentist office. But what made it unusual in this case was that the drugs had nothing to do with oral care. Some of the drugs that were being prescribed were vaginal creams and appetite suppressants. Four weeks after Norman was killed, Virginia and Jason Larzalier were charged with first-degree murder. The break in the case came May 2nd, when detectives learned the weapon used in the killing may have been disposed of in a tidal basin along Interstate 95. The St. John Sheriff's Office did find the weapon at the bottom of Pelliser Creek, about 60 miles north of Edgewater. The weapon was encased in cement inside a box. Virginia was arrested immediately. Authorities said she appeared ready to leave town. Her purse was stuffed with gold and cash. Her son surrendered the next day. Jason Larzalier was interviewed for an episode of Snapped, a long-running true crime show on the Oxygen Network. 
more than 200 snapped episodes have aired. The one on Virginia Larzalier was profiled on the series' second episode of the first season. Here he is talking about his arrest. I heard that I was being looked at as a suspect when I heard that there was an arrest warrant out there with my name on it. Um, And I turned myself in. The investigation that Edgewater Police conducted took them to seven counties and resulted in the interviews of 66 people. Then Edgewater Police Chief Lawrence Shoemaker told the media that officers had sympathy for the grieving widow, but it took very little time before they grew suspicious. He said she clearly wasn't telling the truth and that she was trying to control everyone. Gamel said he was particularly surprised at Virginia's propensity for lying, and it was something he noticed right away. She talked to him about diseases she supposedly had. She told him she was a breast cancer survivor and had a mastectomy. She also claimed to have had Legionnaire's disease. Here is Gamel on the same episode of Snapped, recalling the various descriptions of the gunman Virginia kept giving him. First he was short, then he was tall, he was Latin, he had a ponytail, constantly changed. You know, honestly, at one point, I expect to say it was the Kool-Aid man. Shoemaker said Virginia wasn't the only person not being truthful to police. There was one person that detectives wanted to put pressure on. Eventually, he started to crack. That witness was Stephen Heidel, a friend of Jason's who worked odd jobs for the Larzalier family. Stephen Heidel was someone that I had met in Orlando, and he just ingratiated himself. So it wasn't before too long that, sure, he was getting a a weekly check um, for picking up dry cleaning, for doing whatever. Heidel told police that on the morning of the murder, he and Jason went to retrieve several insurance policies from a storage unit Jason had rented. That wasn't all. He knew where the murder weapon was. He told police that he and Kristen Palmieri, who worked at the dental office, were told by Virginia to wipe the murder weapon down with muriatic acid. Then they poured cement over the weapon and dumped it in the water near St. Augustine. Police acted on that information and not only found the weapon, they also found traces of cement and shotgun shells inside Virginia's home. During a deposition in 2002, Gamel testified that tests were done on that cement found in the house, and it was a match to the cement that was used to encase the murder weapon. Heidel also told police that Virginia forged her husband's will, and it was witnessed by Jason. Heidel and Palmieri became key witnesses for the state against Virginia and Jason Larzalier. They weren't perfect by any stretch. That's obvious considering they admitted to being accessories to murder. That was something Gamel conceded in his snapped interview. They were the lesser of all evils, so we had to utilize them so we could get uh, Virginia and Jason. 
people defending Virginia Larzalier and her son rely heavily on the fact that Heidel and Palmieri were not the most trustworthy. Their statements to police and their sworn testimony before and during the trials would be dissected and contradicted again and again. Those defending the Larzaliers argued that Heidel and Palmieri were not only wannabe con artists, they were the actual killers. Gamel, however, believed Heidel and Palmieri were telling the truth. After all, who would commit a murder, dispose of the weapon, and then tell police where to find the weapon? Gamel, during his 2002 deposition, also revealed one other piece of evidence police had found in the Larzalier home. A handwritten diagram of the dentist's office was found. There were like handwritten directions on how to enter the building, shoot the target, and exit the building as efficiently as possible without getting caught. On June 3rd, both Virginia and Jason Larzalier entered not guilty pleas. They were refused bail, so they remained in jail awaiting trial. Both trials were amazing theater, and the result of one was downright shocking. Tune in next week for part two of this crazy story. I'll give more details about Virginia's secret life. I'll discuss the results of the trial and the family's fight for custody of the children and for the $2.1 million from Norman's life insurance policy. I'll welcome a couple of surprise guests, too. You won't want to miss it. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.